Section 22 of Revelations of a Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. Revelations of a Wife by Adele Garrison. Chapter 22. An Amazing Discovery. It was two days after our quarrel over Grace Draper and her selection of a summer home for us, before Dicky again broached the subject of leaving the city for the summer. "'By the way,' he said, as carelessly as if the subject had never been a bone of contention between us, "'that house I was speaking of the other night, the one Miss Draper thought we would like, has been rented, so we will have to look for something else.' I had no idea how he had managed to get rid of taking the house after his protégé had gone to the trouble of hunting one up, nor did I care. I told myself that as the girl's insolent assurance in selecting a house for me had been put down, I could afford to be magnanimous. So I smiled at Dicky and said with an ease which I was far from feeling, but there must be other places in Marvin that are desirable, that day we were out there i caught glimpses of streets that must be beautiful in summer into dicky's eyes flashed a look of tender pleasure that warmed me taking advantage of his mother's absorption in her fish he threw me a kiss i knew that i had pleased him wonderfully by tacitly agreeing to go to marvin and that our quarrel was to him as if it had never been I wish I had his mercurial temperament. Long after I have forgiven a wrong done to me, or an unpleasant experience, the bitter memory of it comes back to torment me. "'That's my bully girl,' was all Dicky said in reply. But when the baked fish had been discussed, and we were eating our salad, he looked up, his eyes twinkling. This green stuff reminds me that if I'm going to get my garden sass planted this year, or you want any flower beds, we'll have to get busy. Can you run out to Marvin with me tomorrow morning and look around? We ought to be able to find something we want. Real estate agents are as thick as fleas around that section. We made an early start the next morning. Mother Graham, with characteristic energy spurring up Katie with the breakfast, and successfully routing Dicky from the second nap he was bound to take. I had been up since daylight, for it was a perfect spring morning, and I was anxious to be afield. As we neared the entrance of the Long Island station, I thought of the first trip we had taken to Marvin, and the unpleasantness which had marred the day, and I plucked Dicky's sleeve timidly. Dicky, I swallowed hard and stopped short. He adroitly swung me across the street into the safety of the runway leading down into the station before he spoke. "'Well, what's on your conscience?' He smiled down at me roguishly. "'You look as if you were going to confess to a murder, at least.' "'Not that bad,' I smiled faintly. "'But, oh, Dicky, if I promise to try not to say anything irritating today, will you promise not to either?' "'Sure as you're born,' Dicky returned cheerfully. "'Don't want to spoil the day, eh?' "'It's such a heavenly day,' I sighed. "'I feel as if I couldn't stand it to have anything mar it.' 
As we sat in the train that bore us to Marvin, Dicky outlined some of his plans for the summer. There are two or three of the fellows who come down here summers who I know will be glad to go Dutch on a motorboat, he said. We can take the bulliest trips way out to deserted sand islands where the surf is the best ever. We'll take along a tent and spend the night there sometime, or we can stretch out in the boat. Then we must see if we can get a hold of some horses. Do you ride? Think of it. We've been married months, and I don't know yet whether you ride or not. No, I don't ride, but oh, how I've always wanted to, I returned with enthusiasm. Then, with a sudden qualm, but all that will be terribly expensive, won't it? Not so awful, Dicky said, smiling down at me. But even if it is, I guess we can stand it. I've had some cracking good orders lately. We'll have one whale of a summer. My heart beat high with happiness. Surely, with all these plans for me, my husband's thoughts could not be much occupied with his beautiful model. As he lifted me down to the station platform at Marvin, I looked with friendliness at the dingy, battered old railroad station which I remembered, and the defiant sign near it, which trumpeted in large type, Don't judge the town by the station, and the winding main street of the village, which, when I had visited Marvin before, Dicky had wished to show me. Upon that other visit, our first sight of Grace Draper and Dicky's interest in her had spoilt the trip for me. I had insisted upon going back without seeing some of the things Dicky had planned to show me, and I had disliked the thought of the town ever since. But with Dicky's loving plans for my happiness dazzling me, I felt a touch of the glamour with which he invested the place in my eyes. I caught at his hand in an unwanted burst of tenderness. "'Let's walk down that old winding street which you told me about last winter.' I said. I've wanted to see it ever since you spoke about it. We'll probably motor down it instead, he grinned. There's a real estate office just opposite here, and I see the agent's fliver in front of the door, where he stands just inside his office. The spider and the fly, eh, Madge? Well, Mr. Spider, here are two dear little flies for you. Oh, Dicky, I dragged at his arm in protest. Don't spoil our first view of that street by whirling through it in a car. Let's saunter down it first, and then come back to the real estate man. You have a gleam of human intelligence sometimes, don't you? Dicky inquired banteringly. Then he took my arm to help me cross the rough places in the country road. We had almost reached the door of the office when Dicky caught sight of a plainly dressed woman coming toward us. I heard him catch his breath, his grasp on my arm tightened, and with an indescribable agile movement he fairly bolted into the real estate office, dragging me with him. I'll explain later, he said in my ear. Just follow my lead now. As he turned to the rotund little real estate agent who came forward to greet us, a look of surprise on his round face, I looked through the window at the woman from whose sight he had dodged. Then I felt that I needed an explanation, indeed, for the woman whose eyes my husband so evidently wished to avoid was Mrs. Gorman, Grace Draper's sister. 
So I was to live in a house of Grace Draper's choosing after all. This was the thought that came most forcibly to me when Mr. Brennan, the owner of the house Dicky had impetuously decided to rent, told us that Miss Draper had looked over the place for an artist friend, and that she would have taken it only for finding another house nearer her own home. I was so absorbed in my own thoughts that I did not at first notice Dicky's embarrassment when Mr. Brennan asked him if he knew Grace Draper. It was only when the man, who had all the earmarks of a gossiping countryman, repeated the question that I realized Dicky's confusion. "'Did you say you knew her?' "'Yes, I know her. She works in my studio,' remarked Dicky shortly. "'Oh!' The exclamation had the effect of a long-drawn whistle. "'Then you probably were the artist friend she spoke of.' "'I probably was,' Dicky's tone was grim. "'I knew how near his temper was to exploding, "'and the look which I beheld on the face of Mr. Birdsall, "'the little real estate agent, galvanized me into action. "'Dear, what do you suppose led Grace to think "'we would like that other place better than this?' I flashed a tender little smile at Dicky. Of course we would like to be nearer her, but this is not very far from her home, and it is so much better, isn't it? Dicky took the cue without a tremor. Why, I suppose she thought you would find this house too big for you to look after, he replied in a matter-of-fact way. That was awful dear and thoughtful of her, I murmured careful to keep my voice at just the right pitch of friendliness toward the absent grace. But I don't think this will be too much, for we can shut up the rooms we don't need. I had the satisfaction of seeing the puzzled looks of Mr. Brennan and Mr. Birdsall change into an evident readjustment of their ideas concerning my husband and Grace Draper. But I did not relax my iron hold upon myself. I knew if I dared let myself down for an instant, angry tears would rush to my eyes. "'When did you say we could move in?' I turned to Mr. Brennan, determined to get away from the subject of Grace Draper as quickly as possible. "'Today, if you want it.' "'No,' returned Dicky. "'but we will want it soon. When do you think we can move?' He turned to me. I spent three busy days at the Brennan place, there was much to be done both inside and outside the house. After the first day, Katie did not return with me, as my mother-in-law needed her in the apartment. But I engaged another woman with the one I had for the work in the house, and put the grinning William in charge of an old man I had secured to clean up the grounds and make the garden. I soon found that I had a treasure in Mr. Jones, who was a typical old Yankee farmer, a wizened little man with chin-whiskers. He could only give me a day or two occasionally, as he was old and confided to me that he was subject to the rheumatics. But while I was there, he ploughed and harrowed and planted the garden, cleared the rubbish away, and made me innumerable flower-beds, keeping an iron hand over the irresponsible William, whose grin gradually faded as he was forced to do some real work for his day's wages. A riotous and extravagant hour in a seed and bulb store resulted in my getting all the flower favorites I had loved in my childhood. 
I also bought the seeds of all vegetables which Dicky and I liked, and a few more, and put them in Mr. Jones's capable hands. If there was a variety of vegetables or flower seeds which looked attractive in the seedman's catalogue and which remained unbought, it was the fault of the salesman, for I conscientiously tried to select every one. I planned the location of a few of the beds, and then confided to Mr. Jones the rest of the outdoor work, knowing that he could finish it after my return to the city. Mr. Birdsall, the agent, was very tractable about the kitchen, sending men the second day to paint it. So, at the end of the third day, when I turned the key in the lock of the front door, I was conscious that the house was as clean as soap and water and hard work could make it, that the grounds were in order, and the growing things I loved on their way to greet me. I fancy it was high time things were accomplished, for in some way I had caught a severe cold. At least that was the way I diagnosed my complaint. My throat seemed swollen, my head ached severely, and each bone and muscle in my body appeared to have its separate pain. When I reached the apartment I felt so ill that I undressed and went to bed at once. "'You must spray your throat immediately,' my mother-in-law said in a business-like way, "'and I suppose we ought to send for that jackanapes of a doctor.' Even through my suffering I could not help but smile at my mother-in-law's reference to Dr. Pettit, who had attended her in her illness. She had summarily dismissed him because he had forbidden her to see to the unpacking of her trunks when she was barely convalescent, and we had not seen him since. "'I am sure I will not need a physician,' I said, trying to speak distinctly, although it was an effort for me to articulate. "'Wait until Dicky comes, anyway.' For distinct in my mind was a mental picture of the look I had detected in Dr. Pettit's eyes— upon the day of his last visit to my mother-in-law. I remembered the way he had clasped my hand in parting. The feeling was indefinable. I scored myself as fanciful and conceited for imagining that there had been anything special in his farewell to me, or in the little courtesies he had tendered me during my mother-in-law's illness. But I told myself again, as I had, after closing the door upon his last visit, that it were better all around if he did not come again. "'If you wait for Richard, you'll wait a long time,' his mother observed grimly. He called up a while ago and said he had been invited to an impromptu studio party that he couldn't get away from, and that he would be home in two or three hours. But I know, Richard, if he gets interested in anything like that, he won't be home until midnight.' I do not pretend either to analyze or excuse the feeling of reckless defiance that seized me upon hearing of Dicky's absence. I reflected bitterly that I had taken all the burden of seeing to the new home, and was suffering from illness contracted because of that work, while Dicky was frolicking at a studio party with never a thought of me. I know without being told that Grace Draper was a member of the frolic, and here I was suffering, yet refusing the services of a skilled physician, because I fancied there was something in his manner, the tolerance of which would savor of disloyalty to Dicky. 
I turned to my mother-in-law to tell her she could summon the physician, but found that I could hardly speak. My throat felt as if I were choking. "'The spray!' I gasped. Thoroughly alarmed, Mother Graham assisted me in spraying my throat with a strong antiseptic solution. Then I gave her the number of Dr. Pettit's office, and she called him up. I heard her tell him to make haste, and then she came back to me. I saw that she was frightened about the condition of my throat, but the choking feeling gave me no time to be frightened. I kept the spray going almost constantly until the physician came. It was the only way I could breathe. Dr. Pettit must have made a record journey, for the doorbell signaled his arrival only a few moments after Mother Graham's message. He gave my throat one swift, shrewd glance, then turned to his small valise and drew from it a stick, some absorbent cotton, and a bottle of dark liquid. With swift, sure movements he prepared a swab and turned to me. "'Open your mouth again,' he said gently but peremptorily. I obeyed him, and the antiseptic bathed the swollen tonsils surely and skillfully. As I swayed, almost staggered, in the spasm of coughing and choking which followed, I felt the strong, sure support of his arm touching my shoulders, of his hand grasping mine. "'Now lie down,' he commanded gently when the paroxysm was over. He drew the covers over me himself, lifted my head and shoulders gently with one hand, while with the other he raised the pillows to the angle he wished. Then he turned to my mother-in-law. She has a bad case of tonsillitis, but there is no danger, he said quietly, utterly ignoring her rudeness at the time of his last visit. I will stay until I have swabbed her throat again. She is to have these pellets. He handed her a bottle of pink tablets. Once every fifteen minutes until she has taken four, then every hour until midnight. Let her sleep all she can and keep her warm. I would like two hot water bags filled, if you please, and a glass of water. She must begin taking these tablets as soon as possible. As my mother-in-law left the room to get the things he wished, Dr. Pettit came back to the bedside and stood looking down at me. "'Where is your husband?' he asked, a note of sternness in his voice. I shook my head. I was just nervous and sick enough to feel the question keenly. I could not restrain the foolish tears which rolled slowly down my cheeks." Dr. Pettit took his handkerchief and wiped them away. Then he said in almost a whisper, "'Poor little girl! How I wish I could bear the pain for you!' End of chapter 22